morning, and I would like to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. We're continuing in a series that we've entitled, The New Man in Christ. The New Man in Christ. It's been an exciting study for me, especially since I've been working on this for a little paper that I'm doing, little in the sense of about 150 pages with four or 500 footnotes attached, but it has been for me something that's been very exciting because it has opened up new avenues and new vistas of thought regarding what it means to be a new creation in Christ. And we've been learning much, especially in an introductory way because we really have just touched the surface of Colossians chapter 3 with verses 1 and following. And we've really begun just to introduce the topic of what it means to be a new man in Christ. And for Christianity itself and what God is doing sovereignly in the body of Christ by bringing one new humanity together under the lordship of Christ. So we've been discussing that which is both individual for the Christian, that he's a new creation in Christ, he's a new man, old things have passed away, and we've also just touched briefly, and we'll touch more on it, about the corporate dynamic, that there is a body of believers, that God is working his work within the body of Christ to present them as the new humanity in Christ to God the Father. And we have excitedly stepped into this section of Scripture to discuss these most important topics. And it might be well for us to read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17, as we work our way through it. Let's read it together this morning as the setting for our teaching time. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, kill the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside or put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you put off the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self or the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. 
And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We've been discussing in our series in Colossians chapter 3, not only the new man in Christ, but also what could characterize that new man. What are the characteristic features that describe or that apply what it is to be a new man in Christ? What are the characteristics that Christ calls for for those who are living under his lordship? for those who are a part of his true body. Well, you know that there are many characteristics that the New Testament calls for that describe the new humanity in Christ, those things which Christians have put off from them in their characteristic old life, and that they have put on that characterize their new life in Christ. One of the things that he mentions is what we have been discussing in chapter 3, verse 1. And that is that if you are a new man in Christ, you will be characterized by pursuing heavenly things. That will be part of the characteristic makeup of your life. We've even said it like this. We've said that Paul uses a term, actually it's a mood in the Greek tense, that describes the reality of a Christian. He describes it by using the mood that Greek scholars have termed the indicative. The indicative. Now that's just an English term that we understand that proves reality. That proves a characteristic nature. If I were to say to you, well, that's just indicative of who you are. That's just indicative of your character. You would understand that by way of English as saying that's the way you are. That's a part of your life. That's a part of your makeup. That's a part of your nature. It is indicative of you. And Paul uses that same kind of idea writing here in the Greek text of Colossians 3 and he says part of the characteristic nature, part of the makeup of a new man in Christ is that he pursues heavenly things. He's not earthbound. He's not a part of the earthiness like Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15. Those who are Christians, those who are characterized by being a new person in Christ, it is indicative of them that they pursue heavenly things. Now, does Paul simply say that in a vacuum? Does he say that a Christian pursues heavenly things and that's all he says? No. He says always that there is a basis, there is a motivation there is a characteristic aspect that proves that this is the case. Now you remember I said to you last time that in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, the sentence reads, 
If then you have been raised up with Christ. That's the first phrase there. And I said to you that there is a certain condition in the Greek language that assumes something to be true. It's called a first class conditional clause in the Greek text. And this is one of those. And a first class conditional clause says this, that for the sake of the argument, something is assumed to be true. Now, by saying that, I'm not saying that the first class conditional clause in the Greek text proves in and of itself by way of its argument that the thing is true. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that Paul assumes what he's saying is true about the people that he's writing to. In other words, he's saying this. If then you have been raised up with Christ, and I assume that you are, then keep seeking heavenly things. Keep pursuing heavenly duties. For the sake of the argument, he says, I assume that it's true of you that you have died with Christ in your salvation. You have been raised with Christ in his resurrection. And because of the truth of that, then pursue heavenly things. That's what he's saying. I assume that as Colossian believers, you have died you have been buried, and you have been co-resurrected with Jesus Christ, and on that basis, you, as a characteristic nature, as a characteristic indicative of who you are, you are to pursue heavenly realities, heavenly things. That's what he's saying. So the context very clearly points to the fact of what Paul is writing. It is a fact that anyone who has died who has been buried, and who has been resurrected spiritually in Jesus Christ is, by his characteristic nature, going to be pursuing heavenly things. And you know, over the last couple of weeks that I've shared with you, I've said to you that if you are not pursuing heavenly things, then maybe this first-class conditional clause that Paul uses isn't true of you. If you read Colossians 3... And if you say to yourself, well, wait a minute. He commands me to pursue heavenly things in my life. I know that as a characteristic nature of who I am, I don't pursue heavenly things. Then maybe, for the sake of the argument, the if-then is not true of you. You haven't died with Christ. You have not been buried with him in his death. And you have not been raised with him in his resurrection. And so, therefore, that proves on its very basis that you are not pursuing heavenly things. Now that is a very, very important argument in Paul's line of reasoning here. Because if we can't get past first base, if we can't establish the fact that you have been raised up with Jesus Christ, co-resurrected with him, then there is no basis for you or for me to pursue heavenly things. Paul never tells anybody by way of an imperative a command. An imperative is just the word we use for a command. It is imperative that you do this. He will never tell anyone to do it without telling them who they are in Christ. And you know that Paul very often will say himself, wait a minute, if you are not doing the things that God has commanded you to do in your life, then maybe you ought to check yourself. He says of false prophets, and those who follow false prophets in 2 Corinthians chapter, 12, uh, chapter 13, you had better check yourself 
whether you are in the faith. He says, prove yourselves whether you are in Christ. He says, or do you not know that Jesus Christ lives in you unless you are disapproved, discredited, found while being tested to be unworthy of the claim? And certainly that's true of false prophets, and it's certainly true of those who follow false prophets. And that's why he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, you'd better check it. You'd better check your life, and you'd better ask yourself this question. Am I pursuing heavenly things? If that is the characteristic, habitual, practiced life of my character, then I can also, with Paul, make an assumption, and that is that I have died with Christ, I've been buried with him in baptism spiritually through his death, and I've been co-resurrected in order that I may pursue heavenly things. That's the whole point. That's the point he's making. So every time Paul talks about the reality of what you're doing, by way of a command, you must do this. There is no option here. He does it on the basis of who you are in the constitutive element of your life, your nature, your character, who you are in reality. That's such an incredibly important detail in Paul's theology, and that's why I spend so much time telling you these things. And I say it because in Christianity today, we have the kind of Christianity where people are told to do certain things. And when they are told to do certain things, they are rarely, if ever, told the basis to do certain things. And when someone comes along as a Bible teacher or as a preacher or as an evangelist, especially when you're evangelizing someone one-on-one, -on -one, and you say, are you doing these things? And they then say, no, I'm not. And then you come along and question the reality of their salvation based upon the fact that they're not doing those things, they react violently to you and say, but you don't understand. So-and-so years ago, I received Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, I came to faith in Christ. I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I did something in order for me now to be called a Christian. And when someone like myself or yourself comes along and say, but wait a minute. The Apostle Paul himself says that if you are truly a Christian, see the first class conditional clause in my statement? If you are truly a Christian, if you have been truly co-resurrected with Jesus Christ himself, you will be pursuing heavenly things. You see, we have the first class conditional clause in our English statements as well. If you have truly received Jesus Christ, then you, by way of a command, will be pursuing heavenly things. The converse is also true. If you are not truly, as a characteristic part of your life, as a habitual part of your life, pursuing heavenly things, then the if clause is not true. You are not co-resurrected with Jesus Christ. Because if you are co-resurrected with Jesus Christ, then you will be pursuing heavenly things. You say all the time, habitually, perpetually, yes, yes. Does that mean sometimes I might stumble? Yes. 
Does that mean sometimes I might disobey? Yes. But that will not be the characteristic part of my life. That will be momentary. That will be sometimes. That will be infrequent. And when it does come that I stumble and that I fall and that I disobey, that will not be the characteristic part of my life. That will be very uncharacteristic of who I am. You see the point? The point with unbelievers is that the whole habit and practice of their life is bad deeds, disobedience, lawlessness. That is the characteristic part of their nature. That is their makeup. That is who they are. And Paul comes along and tells the Colossians, I've been telling you now for two solid chapters, this is who Christ is. This is the person of Christ. Christ plus nothing. Now I'm telling you this, Colossian believers, and by way of application, all of us, if you have died with Christ, and we studied that in our Romans 6 study, if you have been buried with him spiritually in his death, and if you have been co-resurrected, then you will be characterized as a person who pursues heavenly things. That's the basis. That is the basis for pursuing heavenly things to be co-resurrected with Jesus Christ. And you remember last time, we told you that there was another basis for it. There was another basis for pursuing heavenly things, and that is my identification with Jesus Christ in his finished work of redemption. You remember we introduced that topic to you? Look at it again in chapter 3, verse 1. If then, or since then, for the sake of the argument, you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking heavenly things or the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Why does he say that? He is saying that the object of a person's life is a person who recognizes his own identification with the finished work of redemption in Jesus Christ. And the way Paul characterizes Christ's finished work is he says that Christ did his work of redemption and he has now sat down at the right hand of God. And that is a very important phrase for Paul to use and he uses it along with other Bible writers a number of times to characterize the finished work of Jesus Christ in terms of his redemption of his chosen people. And he says that it cannot be true that anyone is pursuing heavenly things unless Jesus Christ has done his finished work of redemption. Now that's logical, right? Every one of us understands that none of us would ever be pursuing heavenly things at all for any reason or any basis at all unless Jesus Christ, prior to our pursuing heavenly things, would have done his salvation work on the cross on our behalf. And so Paul says there are then two bases for you to pursue heavenly things. The first is that you have been co-resurrected with Jesus Christ himself, and secondly, that you would have identified yourself with the finished work of Jesus Christ who is sitting on the right hand of God. Now, you say, again, does that mean that I am continually pursuing heavenly things? That's got to be the characteristic nature of my life. Absolutely. Why? Because the word keep seeking, that is present tense. That means that I will, as a habitual part of my life, be pursuing 
heavenly things. And Paul is saying, in essence then, since you have been raised with Christ, co-resurrected, you, as a habitual part of your life, will be pursuing heavenly things. And you will be doing it also on the basis that Jesus Christ has done his great work. Now, let me clear up a little bit, if I can, of confusion based upon this phrase, seated at the right hand of God. You see it there in verse 1? There is much misunderstanding about that, what, what that phrase means, and there shouldn't be, frankly. It's probably only misunderstanding because people haven't studied that phrase through in their Bibles to understand what it means. And I've often heard people in theological discussions use this verse wrongly or this concept of being seated at the right hand of God to actually prove that Jesus Christ is not God. You say, how so? Well, there are certainly a lot of JWs, and it would be true of those within the Way International, a cult that also denies the deity, the deity of Jesus Christ, because they say, how can God the Father and how can God the Son, for the sake of your argument, Christian, how can they be one and the same if God the Father is sitting on his throne and Jesus Christ is sitting to the right of God the Father. You've heard that before? You've heard that argument before? I've heard that before. And when I was a new Christian, brand new, because I, as I told you, my mother came out of the Jehovah's Witness cult, and so I was very, very concerned with everyone that I came across who was a Jehovah's Witness, and I always ran up to them and say, all right, let's get into our discussion now about the deity of Jesus Christ. And when I was a new Christian, they would say to me, how can God the Father and God the Son, for the sake of your argument, because that's the way I was describing the first two persons of the Godhead, how can they be God if one is sitting on the throne and the other, Jesus Christ, is seated at the right hand of God? Well, my answer, not then, of course, because I didn't know what I was talking about, I was very ignorant, but my answer to them now would be, it's very simple. The phrase, Jesus Christ being seated at the right hand of God, does not mean that Jesus Christ, in his physical being, is sitting to the right of a throne where God the Father is seated. How do we know that's true? God the Father is not a physical being. And God the Father, because he's not a physical being, does not sit on a literal throne. Very easy answer. The New Testament teaches that God is a spirit, John 4, right? So if God is a spirit, according to John 4, if he does not have flesh and bones like Jesus Christ who was incarnated into a human body, if that's not characteristic of who God the Father is, then he is not seated on a literal throne. And the phrase that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God does not mean literally that Jesus Christ physically is seated to the right of God the Father. That is something that someone thought of when they read their English Bibles, but that is not what that means. When it says Christ is seated at the right hand of God, it means something soteriologically in terms of salvation. It means that Jesus Christ has finished his work of redemption. That's what it means. He has finished his work of redemption. It doesn't mean that he's sitting physically at the right hand of God the Father. In fact, the phrase right 
hand is a phrase that denotes power, authority. It doesn't mean physically a right hand. And I've often heard people characterize it, and innocently enough, they've said, now, when I think of Trinity, is, is it true to say that in your mind you can think of God the Father sitting on a throne, that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and that the Holy Spirit is on the left-hand side, right? That's how often people conceive of what the Trinity is doing. God the Father is in the middle, the Holy Spirit is on the left, and some people even joke and say that God can't do anything with his right hand because Jesus Christ is sitting on it. And often I've talked with people and I've said, you don't honestly believe that, do you? Because that is not what these phrases mean. When it says that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God, it is talking about the work that he's accomplished in salvation, and it's talking about what Christ is to God the Father in the sense of power and authority. He is God's right hand. He is God's authority. He is to God what we perceive God to be. Let me say that again. He is to God what we perceive God to be. You say, how can you say that? When Jesus answered the questions of his own disciples and of others, where is the Father? Let us see the Father. What was his response? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am God's representative to you. In essence, he was saying, I am God to you. You remember in the Beatitudes when it says, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, and it says in one of those, if you are this kind of blessed, you will see God. Remember that? Now, does that mean we will see God the Father? No. We will never see God the Father because God the Father is not represented physically to us. Now, you say, wait a minute. The Bible says that God is a hand. The Bible says God has eyes, the right hand of God. That is what is commonly called in theological circles an anthropomorphism. What that means is the Bible has been written in accommodating ways to accommodate to our finiteness so that we might understand the realities of who the Godhead is. When it says God has eyes that run to and fro above and across the earth, it does not mean that God has literal physical eyes. It simply means that God in his mind is looking across the world. When it says God has a right hand, it is not talking about a physical right hand. It's talking about something that denotes power and authority. And so when it says that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God, it means that Jesus Christ is God's authority in the world with regard to human beings and with regard to the matter of salvation. And when it says that we will one day see God, that means that we will one day see Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is God. And when we see Jesus Christ in eternity, we will see the physical person of Jesus Christ. We'll see the nail scars in his hands. We'll see the pierce mark in his side. We will see Jesus Christ physically. But when we see God, we will see Christ for Christ is God. And that's all we need to see. That's all we need to see. All we need to see is the very face of Jesus Christ because he to us is God. That's all we ever need to see. And you don't need to let that disappoint you in any way. 
No one should be disappointed by thinking to themselves in eternity future, I will never see God the Father or I will never see the Holy Spirit. You will never be able to see the Holy Spirit because he's a spirit. He's the Holy Spirit. There's no need to see the Spirit. There's no need to see physically God the Father. The only person that we need to see is what God has chosen to reveal to man, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. And believe me, when you see the effulging glory and dynamic personification of Jesus Christ, believe me, that's all we will ever want to see. We'll only want to see the face of Jesus Christ. And when it says that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God, it means very unmistakably that Christ has finished his salvation work for you and for me who are in Christ and we're part of the new humanity. And as a result of that, Paul says, you then must be pursuing heavenly things and you wouldn't even be pursuing those things if Christ hadn't done what he did in your salvation. That's his point. This point, by the way, of being seated at the right hand of God is an incredible dynamic in the teaching of the New Testament. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 teaches again this concept of being seated at the right hand of God. This is an incredible teaching of the New Testament. And for you to grasp its truth that Jesus Christ has done his salvation work and that he is the power and the authority of God in this phrase, seated at the right hand, it opened up, opens up new vistas of thought to all of us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. It says in verse 19 that the power of God, the strength of God, is being manifested in the person of Christ. And it says in verse 20, he brought about this strength in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now here's the idea of power and authority in this phrase, seated at the right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Same kind of language as Colossians 3. Christ is all in all. Christ is everything. Christ is all in all to us because he has completed the salvation that only he could give to us on the basis of his death on the cross. And once he accomplished that reality, perfected forever those who are sanctified, he has been seated at the right hand of God the Father because it is the place of honor, majesty, glory, dominion, and power. That's the point. Look at also Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And this again will be a verse that attests to the fact that when we see God in eternity future, we will see the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews 1.3, is the radiance of His glory, God's glory. Christ is the radiance of God's glory. If you want to see the glory of God, if you're after the glory of God in eternity future, then look no further than the person of Jesus Christ because he is the radiance of God's glory. And he is the exact representation of his nature. And Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. And when Christ 
had made purification of sins. That's another way of talking about salvation. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There it is. The right hand of the majesty on high. It's talking both about salvation and it's also talking about authority, dominion, and power. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 verse 12. But he, that is Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins, which is a hit that is right on target against the Catholic Church. Why? Because the Catholic Church, and if you're a Catholic, former Catholic, you know what I'm talking about. Every time you celebrated the Mass, you were once again being atoned for, according to their theology, on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. And you know their doctrine of transubstantiation. That they believe that every time that that mass, the bread and the cup, is administered to you, it becomes literally, literally, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And when you take that wafer onto your tongue, and when you drink from that chalice, you are once again having your sins atoned for by the literal person, Jesus Christ, in the form of that Mass. That's exactly what Rome teaches. And this verse is a direct opposite hit on that theology. Because it says, He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. And when was that? That was in 33 AD, and that was on the cross at Calvary there at Golgotha, and that sacrifice occurred at that point. And your salvation, if you're the new man in Christ, and if I'm the new man in Christ, that means that my salvation was secured by Christ in 33 A.D., if that's the right date. It was secured for me at that point. I wasn't saved in 1979. My salvation was secured when Christ the very moment he died that death on the cross. That's when my salvation was secured, and it was applied to me in 1979. And whenever you were saved, whenever you were regenerated, and whenever faith and repentance was granted to you, at that moment, your salvation was applied to you, and that once-for-all sacrifice was for you at that moment supplied by Christ in terms of your faith and repentance, and it happened at that very moment. But your salvation was secured by the one sacrifice for sins for all time. And once Christ did that, the text of Hebrews 10 says, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. For by one offering, one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Praise God that our salvation was secured once and for all. Do you imagine the kind of life you would have to live thinking that from one mass to the other, I was in Christ, out of Christ, in Christ, out of Christ? What fear, what bondage, what legalism? My salvation and yours, if you are in Christ, was secured for us by the death of Christ and was applied to us when we believed. And that was a forever salvation. And it was secured, and it was verified by Jesus Christ 
seated at the right hand of God who in the glory and dominion and power and majesty of that very seating has accomplished that work. And that, my friends, is the basis behind you and behind myself as we pursue heavenly things. That's what Paul is saying. And if you don't think that phrase, being seated at the right hand of God, is important, did you realize that somewhere around 34 times in the New Testament alone, it says that Christ has finished the work of redemption and is seated at the right hand of God? Apparently, there's a message there for us. Over 34 times we are told that Christ has finished the work of redemption by being seated at the right hand of God. That's the verification that he is indeed the Messiah and has accomplished that once-for-all redemption on our behalf. Now, application. Here it is. Are you pursuing heavenly things? If you are, it will be on two bases, two things that will verify whether or not you are pursuing heavenly things. Number one, your co-resurrection with Jesus Christ. Secondly, that you have in reality had your sins atoned for by Jesus Christ and by the fact that he's seated at the right hand of God, you then on those two bases alone can pursue heavenly things. And I'm here today to tell you that if you are pursuing heavenly things as the characteristic nature of your life, it is on those two bases. Those two. Conversely, if you are not pursuing heavenly things, then it reveals the reality that number one, you've never been co-resurrected with Jesus Christ, and secondly, the work of redemption by Christ who is seated by the right hand of God to confirm that very salvation has never been applied to you. And that's why this is in the practical section of the writings of the Apostle Paul. Because practically he is saying this to them and by way of application to us as well, the only two ways that you can possibly pursue heavenly things is to have these realities already occurring in your life. And believe me, if anyone thinks they're pursuing heavenly things and it isn't true and you're doing works and if it isn't on these basis, those are dead works. Those are not true works. Because wouldn't it be true that every Catholic would say of themselves that they're trying to do the good works? Wouldn't they say they're trying to pursue heavenly things? Right? And some of, some of them with a fervency. Wouldn't it be true of Martin Luther, the great monk who came out of Roman Catholicism, who used to go up the steps at Wittenberg on his knees in self-flagellation, self-made religion, because he was so earnest in his relationship with God? Wasn't it true of the Apostle Paul that it says of him in Philippians chapter 3 that not only did he have the pedigree of being right with God, but he, as to the law, was found blameless. He was doing all kinds of works, and he was earnest. He was doing all kinds of good works, at least in his judgment, in the way that he thought was acceptable to God. And the response of God to him, and Paul knew it, ultimately after he was saved, all of those good works were but rubbish, dung, refuse, scubalon, 
those things for him meant absolutely nothing. And, and, and wasn't it a shock? And wasn't it a shock for you? Because it was for me that everything prior to my conversion, everything that I thought was good, everything that I thought was righteous, every time that I thought I helped another person, I ultimately stood in my relationship with God and his response to me was, all of those things are but rubbish. They merit you nothing in your relationship to me. Nothing. And you have people who will argue with God and who will say, but didn't I do this? And didn't I do this? And didn't we do these wonderful, mighty works in your name? And he will profess unto them what? I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. There was never any intimacy between yourself and me. Why? Why? And every true bona fide Roman Catholic and every true cultist and every true non-believer and every true legalist and every true hypocrite is going to ultimately stand before God and say, why? Why didn't my works merit anything in your sight? And his response to them is going to be twofold. Twofold. Number one, because you were never co-resurrected with Jesus Christ in his death. That was never true of you. And secondly, you never had the work of Jesus Christ in salvation applied to your account. Therefore, you never truly, biblically, in holiness of life, pursued heavenly things. You never did that. It was never true of you. You may have thought so. Other people around you may have thought so. There are philanthropists, there are givers, there are quote-unquote good people all around this country and all around the world who think that by the giving of their time, talent, and treasure, they will be acceptable to God. And he will say to them, but you were never co-resurrected with Jesus Christ and his work of redemption was never applied to you. Therefore, it merited you nothing. Nothing. You say, that sounds cold, harsh, cruel. Guess what? Christianity is a very exclusive religion. It excludes everyone who didn't come by the way of the cross. That's it. The other night, I was up late writing. I turned on the television, and I saw an interview with Franklin Graham and Tom Snyder, the late, 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 late show. And I thought to myself, number one, what am I doing up this late? And number two, how curious it is for Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, to be talking with Tom Snyder. And while it was encouraging for me to hear Franklin Graham give his personal testimony on air, especially to Tom Snyder, who revealed himself to be a Catholic, it was discouraging for me to hear that Franklin Graham never said anything about what we've been talking about this morning. He never talked about the righteousness of Jesus Christ being applied to someone who had no righteousness of their own. He never talked about being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All he talked about were sins being forgiven. He never gave the basis 
He never gave the reality. He never talked about what it meant to not have my own righteousness and not to have my own right standing with God in my own mind and to have the very righteousness of Jesus Christ as a coat that clothes me because I have no coat of my own, even though I may think I do. Now, would that have been the necessary message for Tom Snyder? Absolutely. That would have been the ideal message. Tom, you and others may assume that you have a righteousness by doing good works, by doing good deeds, by doing those things which you think are acceptable to God. But I'm here to tell you, on the basis of the Word of God, the only righteousness that will ever be acceptable to God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who He is, and it is a righteousness apart from my own, and it is a righteousness that I have derived by faith, faith in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the object of my salvation, and that is the only way that I'm going to spend eternity with God in heaven. Now, even if he said it as excitedly as I said it, it still would have been true. And secondly, Tom Snyder said to him, now let me get this straight, are you telling me that the only way to have your sins forgiven is Jesus Christ? And I'm so thankful he said yes, because at least he got it partially accurate. And then Tom Snyder said to him, well, well now wait a minute, are you telling me that the Jews who don't believe in Christ aren't going to have their sins forgiven? Now that, my friends, is the million-dollar question. And his response was pretty good. His response was, I'm not telling you this. This is not Franklin Graham's message. This is the message of the Bible. I appreciate the fact that he said that, but I wish he would have gone farther and said this. Christianity is Jesus Christ. Eternity with God is Christianity. Jesus Christ is God. And the only way you can have a relationship with God is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, that's the message we need to give to people today. And when we tell them that the only basis for you to be pursuing heavenly things in this life is to die, be buried, and be resurrected with Jesus Christ and to acknowledge his redemptive work on the cross and that he is, that he is seated at the right hand of God from on high, a place of majesty, honor, glory, and dominion and power, then that is the only basis that you and I can be pursuing heavenly things. And beloved, I pray, it is my prayer for myself and for you in your life, that you are continually, as a characteristic nature of your life, pursuing heavenly things. And it will be on the basis of your knowledge, your mind, your apprehension, your cognition of the co-resurrection that you've received with Jesus Christ and the fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of God because he has indeed died on your behalf. That's the only basis. And as we study more about what it means to be the new man in Christ, we'll study even more of the great riches of Colossians chapter 3, and it will thrill our hearts. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, let us be students of your word. Don't let us be satisfied with the trivial pursuits of this life. Allow us to be the true pursuers of heavenly things. And that... And only that, based upon our co-resurrection and based upon the redemption of Jesus Christ. May we continue to pursue heavenly things, if we are, because of those two realities. Thank you for giving us the characteristic nature of the new man in Christ who pursues godly things. For that we'll be forever thankful in Jesus' name. Amen.